Yeah, I think that um, the best thing that SETI or searching for techno signatures um, can help us perhaps realize is that we can or will or could have a very long future. I think that one of the most positive things that SETI could do was simply to say, look, somebody else made it through, right? There's somebody else out there, something else out there, which has technology at our level or more advanced. They managed to survive their technological infancy. That's the state we're in right now. And, you know, even if they can't tell us how they did it, the fact that they did it should be really good news for us because it means that it's possible to get to a long future. So that's Lovely. that's why I think SETI should be supported. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. Yes, it is still an amazing world. And on this podcast, you'll hear about and from people who are making it that way. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich founder of The Goodness Exchange, which is the mothership website of this podcast. At The Goodness Exchange, you'll see 10 years worth of articles and links and videos and such that point to what's right with the world. If you want a more balanced version of reality that is not plagued with so much doom and gloom, with no politics and, and no ads, The Goodness Exchange can give you instant access to positive news. So today we're going to explore a topic that I have long waited to to share with folks because I am such a big believer in possibility. And certainly our guest today, Dr. Jill Cornell Tarter, is a one woman who saw possibility many, many years ago and just kept at it, no matter the obstacles. So welcome, Jill Tarter. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. I'm just going to give people a little bit of a bio so we can all appreciate the magnitude of your contribution. You know, you're finding what you are uniquely built to contribute is a gift to humanity, of course. So Dr. Tarter is the American astronomer best known for the work as director of the SETI Institute. And you might have heard of SETI because it is our planet's most widely known effort to search for extraterrestrial intelligence right here in our galaxy and beyond. SETI is almost 40 years old now, and I'm using this vast array of powerful radio telescopes. Maybe Jill's going to set me straight on that. I'm not sure if it's it, it still remains radio telescopes. But you are aimed at discovering evidence of beings on other planets that are at least as technologically savvy as we are. Am I explaining this pretty close to to right? Yes, that's what we're looking for. But the method for trying to find them is to look for evidence of their technology that's modifying the environment in some way that we can sense remotely. That is such a key point. And I want us to talk about that, too, because, you know, it's easy to get the search for extraterrestrial intelligence all mixed up with the UFOs and spooky things. <laughs> yep. 
But this is real science that Jill's been plowing away at for so many years with such rigorous intention, such that in 2004, Time magazine named Jill one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world. And we are here to talk to her today about the insights that generated that distinction and those that followed thereafter. So Jill, start there. Explain to us in ordinary people terms what you've been using to detect the technology of others. That's the key, right? That is. And we've been using instruments that have been developed for astronomical purposes and also for other kinds of survey work on the sky. So we look at the sky at some frequency, and we started out by using radio telescopes. So we're looking for signals that are arriving here on Earth that are in the size of the waves that arrive, are centimeters to meters. That's the radio part of the spectrum. And we look for signals that are a type that we don't think that nature can produce naturally. So at first, we looked for frequency compression. We looked for signals that showed, uh, showed up only on one channel of the radio dial. Natural emissions show up on many, many channels across the spectrum, and they're what we call broadband. But we're looking for narrowband signals, something that was created and engineered to look artificial. And we do that in two ways. We take the radio telescope and we point it either at star systems where we know that there are planets orbiting or we think there are planets orbiting. And then we also can take the telescope and sweep it across the sky so that we survey all directions. Now, that second methodology, the sky survey, is less sensitive than the targeted search because we don't spend much time looking at any frequency at any direction when you're making a big survey. But So we think it's a good idea to do both of these strategies. We started with the targeted search at the radio and then started a sky survey using telescopes from NASA's Deep Space Network when we were part of NASA as a SETI project. And we did these two methodologies, and we did it systematically. And we were looking for, again, signals that could change in time slowly, but only ever occupied a very narrow range of frequencies at once. And then as time went on, we began rethinking what other kinds of things we could be looking for. And one of the things that we realized was that we had essentially no sensitivity to transient signals, things that turned on and turned off, but were not continuously there. And so we began developing technologies that could look for these transients. And then we expanded our wavelength coverage to begin to look in the optical part of the spectrum and the infrared. And we began thinking about not only deliberately generated signals, but what other manifestations of technology might we find? And so my favorite way of explaining what I mean by that 
is to talk about a very interesting star system called TRAPPIST-1. The star is smaller and fainter than our sun, but it has seven Earth-sized planets orbiting around that star. And they're all at different distances. So the planets that are farther away from the star should be colder than the planets that are closest to that star. But suppose when we get the ability to do this, and we, we can't do it now, but we will fairly soon, suppose we made an, you know, we're looking at this star system and we could see an image of the star and all of the planets. And then we measured the temperature of those planets. And we found that one, two, three, four of them, perhaps, were all the same temperature. But they shouldn't be, because naturally the ones farthest from the star would be colder than the ones closest to the star, because the energy for that heat comes from the star. But if you found that two or more of these planets were the same, you would have to begin to wonder about whether someone wasn't doing something to generate that same constant temperature. Perhaps an intelligent technological civilization evolved around one on one of those planets, and then it wanted some more habitable real estate. So it hopped over to the nearest planet. And if it were on Earth, we would say it would be terraforming the planet to be more towards the kinds of conditions that the extraterrestrial engineers preferred. So that's the kind of thing that we're thinking of now, not just signals, but anything on the sky that doesn't seem to follow what we think we know about physics. Well, you know, that leads me to this question about that when we look for life on other planets, you know, I know lots of us think, well, how would we even know if there's some other biological systems going? How would we, we might be looking right at life and not recognizing it. Are there, are, is this how you're thinking too? Like, we don't know what we don't know. That's right. And actually on this planet, there's something called desert varnish on the rocks of the Southwest. And there's a really big controversy over many years about whether that was alive or not. And then still people arguing on both sides of the question. But basically what we would think about in terms of remotely detecting biology is we'd look for disequilibrium chemistry. So in our atmosphere, we have methane and oxygen, right? Those are two very reactive gases. And when you put them together, proximity, they instantly turn into carbon dioxide and water. And that is happening in our atmosphere all the time. But because biology on the surface of the planet is the source for the methane and a lot of the carbon dioxide, we have this source function so that even when methane and oxygen are combining in the atmosphere to give us carbon dioxide and water, there's still methane and oxygen because the biological source function at the base of the atmosphere is so strong. So we would like to be able to look at the atmospheres of nearby exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars, and do a chemical assay and see if we can see this sort of 
disequilibrium chemistry, something that you wouldn't have expected. And it's not easy, right? These assortion or emission lines are very faint because quite a ways the stars are far away from us, even though I called them nearby. And it's a hard measurement to make. And last year, there was a big controversy because people were looking at the clouds on the planet Venus in our old solar system. And they saw a spectral feature, which they thought was the molecule phosphine. And this was big news because on Earth, the production of phosphine is always a part of a biological system. So it takes biology to produce phosphine here. And if there's phosphine in the clouds of Venus, did that mean that there was biology living in those clouds? And it, it took a while, but finally the astronomical community agreed that it was a misidentification, that the thing, the spectral feature we thought was phosphine was in fact sulfur dioxide. So, and that's a lot easier experiment to do in our own solar system than it is exploring somebody else's solar system, some other star out there. So there's room for ambiguity here. Well, and, you know, in collaboration, too, does the work you've done sort of parallel that search for life and then this other, this world? I mean, I can even remember the time when we didn't even know that that exoplanets existed. That's right. (laughs) There was a time when we just thought the world was a bunch of suns or the galaxy or the universe, never thinking that there could be rocky bodies going round and round suns throughout the universe, just like ours. Has it, how much of a crossover? I've always wondered if people are studying that, then you're studying this and somebody's studying that. Is there a collaboration? Is there a... Yeah, there is. And certainly in the last few decades, the game changers have been exoplanets, knowing that now we can say with statistical certainty that every star has at least one planet orbiting it. So exoplanets, but extremophiles, which are types of life that make a living in environments where when I was a student, I was taught that there was no possibility for biology or life, the bottom of the ocean, frozen in ice, in uh, the hottest volcanic environments. But now we know that life, just life based on DNA like we are, can in fact find ways of making a living in these inhospitable, at least for us, environments. So extremophiles and exoplanets have really changed the game. And because it takes so much expertise to cover all of these different possibilities, there is in fact a great deal of collaboration among astronomers, physicists, chemists, biologists. We will use any talent and knowledge base that we that can help us understand what we're observing. Hi, Dr. Linda Ulrich here, founder of the Goodness Exchange. Hey, did you know that a recent Harvard study found that just 90 seconds of positive news each day will make you 18% more optimistic, 32% less anxious, and 12% more likely to feel gratitude? Yes, If you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, you will radiate joy 
and strength and ideas in all your circles. And the Goodness Exchange will give you that instant access you need to positive news, fresh insights, and uplifting perspectives. That will save you time and your sanity. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. But what about our working environments? We need to feel alive in those places and feel supported. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange for business. For companies all over the world who want to create optimistic, values-driven work cultures, our content can give them a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may now depend on your culture's ability to nurture this tone of insight and innovation and possibility. So why should we care? I don't know which one of the following statistics is more important. In 2022, only 32% of people reported feeling engaged at work. And that's the second year in a row there for a decline in that report. And one study found that 70% of employees say they would leave their current organization for a different employer offering resources to reduce burnout. This is hard to hear, but your work culture can offer something new peace of mind and a sense of flourishing, where employees' well-being isn't just a perk any longer. Addressing the root cause of employee burnout is critical to every company's bottom line, and the goodness exchange for business is the perfect way to do that. We can meaningfully elevate the results of your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages and give you an organization that has its foundations in a shared sense of positivity. If you'd like to chat about infusing your company's culture with a tone of celebration about what's right with the world, about goodness and innovation and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl, at info at goodness-exchange.com. Thanks. Well, you know, you mentioned how it was when you first started. Your, your story... <laughs> Since we we had our pre-call chat, I've probably told about 10 people your story of starting out at Cornell and, and your maiden name is Cornell. Tell us a story of how, how a young girl, you're from modest scientific folk. I mean, but your dad taught you a lot about, was it shortwave radio that you've... My dad have helped me take apart and put them back together a couple of times, the first sort of transistor portable radios that we had. But more to the fact, my, da- my dad taught me about the sky. Right. He was someone who had wanted to study astronomy as a college student and instead became an investigator for the Securities Exchange Commission, trying to weed out fraud in that industry. But we, I would go hunting and camping and fishing with my dad because I was the son that he had always wanted to have. And he had been looking up at the sky and made it very clear to me that, in fact, those stars might be like our sun and have planets around. So my mindset has always been that when I look at the sky and see a star, I can think that, gee, maybe on a planet that's orbiting that star, there might be a small creature walking along the ocean, the edge of the ocean with their parent and seeing my sun as a star in their sky. So that's that. Worldview has been part of my experience for a very long time, thanks to my dad. And 
you know, when I went to Cornell, I was excited because I am a distant descendant of Ezra Cornell. And because our finances, when I was growing up, were very modest, my mother, because my dad had already passed away, my mother sent a letter of inquiry to the financial aid's office and said, I know that you have a scholarship for direct descendants of Ezra Cornell. And they wrote back and said, yes, Mrs. Cornell, we do have such a scholarship, but it's only for male descendants, right? Which is one of the first crushing kinds of things that I experienced. And then I showed up at on the engineering campus and I was the only female out of 300 entering engineers that year. And that was an interesting experience. And actually things have gotten a lot better because two years ago I did another event with Cornell and I learned at that time that the entering freshman engineering class of that year was 51% female. So a huge turnaround, which is great because we need all of the smart minds that we can get a hold of. So, and then you didn't just have, you know, even once there, one of 300 engineering students that was female. You, I mean, that went on. They Didn't you tell me that they... They were worried about your safety, so they locked you in your room at 10 o'clock at night until 6 a.m. They did that with all females, right? If you were living on campus, they had this in loco parented idea that all the young women had to be locked into dorms at 10 o'clock at night, and they didn't unlock the dorms until 6 the next morning. And that really used to make me furious because in the winter, when the lake freezes over, and I wanted to get out and go ice skating before classes started and to have to wait until six to do this. It was very frustrating. Yeah. It, well, so things it have gotten better. Of, it left you out of that sense of collaboration and late night study sessions. And That's right. But I got a better education. So all my male colleagues were sitting around their dorms or in bars or in college town, and they were sharing the problem sets. Okay, you do the even questions and I'll do the odd questions and I'll take the physics and you take the chemistry and that kind of thing. So they shared the work, but they missed the learning. I ha I was all by myself and I did all the problem sets and I got, therefore, I think a better education, at least scholastically. Socially, I was a disaster, but scholastically, I really did get a good education. You know, it, it, that's the way I'm sure you've had to learn to look at two steps forward, one step back or other, I'm sure, right right off in the world. How much I watched the movie Contact the other night again, I loved it the first time, loved it the re recently. And but, you know, I tend to be a glorious sight of Jane Goodall fan. And and it worries me that folks do not know. I talk to millennial women a lot and it's Jane and Gloria are starting to fade from people's awareness. And that scares me a lot. And, yeah. and I was wondering, like, what made you care so much? Because I can't even imagine. I mean, it was hard for me. My dad, I remember the night he sat me down when I was 15. The only thing a woman could be was a teacher, a stewardess, a nurse or a secretary. And my dad sat me down one night and said, Linda, you are going to be a pharmacist. That was the biggest thing he could possibly he was a doctor himself it it was the biggest thing he could possibly think of to say now you must have come up against that just 
over and over. What made you care so much and keep going? Well, stubbornness and the fact that my dad died when I was young. So I had the same conversation with my father when I was about, and when my dad and I would have conversations and I was small, he'd pick me up and sit me on a washing machine so that we would be eye level, right? Eye to eye. And my dad had clearly been talking to my mom and my mother had said that I should be spending more time with her learning how to do girl things than the all the time I was spending with my father in the outdoors and camping. And so my dad explained this to me. And I just got so furious. I was enraged. And I'm saying, why? Why can't I do both? Why do I have to do one or the other? I want to do both. And and on. And, and of course, being a manipulative female, I put on the tears, right? Because get your dad on your side all the time. And he said, well, I guess if you're willing to work hard enough, you can do anything that you want. And I just slammed my fist down and I said, I'm going to be an engineer. I don't think I knew what engineers in general did. But my dad had a lot of male friends, many of whom were engineers, and they seemed to enjoy their work life. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be an engineer. And then a few years later, my dad died. And I said, well, I told my father I was going to be an engineer, so damn it, I'm going to be an engineer. And I, it was stubborn. And just that early decision and a promise to someone who I really looked up to kept me going. And then once I got my engineering degree, I looked around and I said, my God, if engineers are as boring as my professors, I need to find something else to use my skills on, something that I don't find boring. And that turned out to be looking for technosignatures, looking for life beyond Earth. So it was a stubbornness. And I had the opportunity shortly after I got my PhD to go to Washington, D.C., to a meeting of other young STEM female scientists. And this was eye-opening and game-changing for me because I walked into a room filled with 80 very smart, very bright, and inspiring young women scientists. I was always used to walking into a room full of men, but I walked into a room full of women and I opened my eyes and we all sat around and tried to do some basic demographics. How did we get here? How did we not fall out of the leaky pipeline? And it turned out that we all learned a lesson very early in life about carpe diem because an statistically significant percentage of the women in that room had had my experience where their fathers were the center of their universe and they died young. And so we all learned about carpe diem. Got a question you want to ask your dad? Well, ask it now. Don't figure, well, I'll, I'll ask it tomorrow. I'll get around to it then. But carpe diem is really an important skill to cultivate. And we got there early because of this unhappy circumstances. I think, uh, have you ever heard that, that in the Encyclopedia Britannica, back when encyclopedias were a, the thing, 
there there was some massive calculation that anybody who had more than a half a page dedicated to them had lost someone early before age 15. Huh. I don't know what the what the exact date, but it's back to that sense of urgency. Yeah. Yeah. Got to do what you can today because you don't know about tomorrow. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I think it goes into this something that I'd love for you to share with people, you know, is that the nuts and bolts of what you've done and what other thought leaders like you in whatever field that they're advancing are doing is you're up against a very strange world, especially now. Maybe was it like this when you first started that you were competing to to hire new people for new minds, great scientific minds, engineers for the SETI Institute? You've probably got to compete with, you know, Tesla and everybody else. And you've got we've got this nuts and bolts problem that you are you are not able to offer a big promise of discovery and notoriety and all those things and probably money and fame. I love how how does this play out when you're working with hiring new people, new great Well, it takes it takes a special kind of person who is comfortable with the fact that they may spend a career and not have any particularly successful outcome. Now, it, it you have to be a person that can define success in a way that's meaningful for you. And yeah. to me, it is being able to do something today that I couldn't manage last week, right? So constantly making uh, the search better in all kinds of different ways. And so you have to be willing to, to work with that as your satisfaction. And of course, the other problem was, even if you can find people who are like this, for a lot of my career, I couldn't promise them that I could make payroll at the end of the month, right? Because the funding was always roller coaster and not ever guaranteed. So now the history is that you started in about 1985, but by 1993, NASA wasn't going to fund the project anymore, and so you had to go out and get private money? Right. And it wasn't NASA that backed away from the project. It was oh. Senator Bryan from Nevada, who in the, NASA, in the budget for the fiscal year, let's see, it's fiscal year 94. We had started SETI observations as a NASA project on October 12th, 1993. Right, Columbus Day, 500 years later. And then Senator Bryan terminated. Uh, we observed for just a, uh, essentially a year, and ter- Senator Bryan terminated the funding for SETI in the NASA budget. And so we sat down, John Billingham at NASA Ames, who was running the SETI program out of the biology division there, got Barney Oliver the director of Hewlett-Packard Labs for decades. And Barney was enamored of SETI. He really thought that it was a cool thing. So John and Barney hired Tom Pearson from San Francisco State, who was a grants administrator at San Francisco State. And they tasked Tom with coming up with a business model that was cheaper. And Tom did that. And he said, you know, if you form a nonprofit and all of those scientists, those soft money scientists from the universities that you've been hiring, they all become employees of that nonprofit. 
then you can cut out that indirect cost, or at least you can negotiate a rate that is much more reasonable and reflected the true cost of doing business this way. And that rate turned out to be 20%, not 100%. And so suddenly, with the same amount of funding, um, by not having to pay those indirect costs to the local universities, we were able to put more money into actually doing the work, building the instruments and doing the observations. It was a very, very clever scheme that Tom came up with. And I became the first employee of the SETI Institute. And very soon thereafter, our colleagues at NASA Ames, uh, who were also contracting with local universities for doing collaborative research, they said, oh, that's a great idea. Can I join the SETI Institute? And so we today have more than a hundred PhD scientists working at the Institute on all different questions arising from wanting to know whether there's life beyond Earth. And we no longer can keep our indirect cost at 20%, but it is less than 40%, which is, again, much lower than local universities are charging. So a good business model, which has stood the test of time and has allowed us to do really interesting work. You know, I, you, we talked a little bit about that conversation, but not in that depth. And I did go and look on the internet to find out more about Barney Oliver, because he really seemed like a linchpin in this whole thing. I could just tell by the way you were describing it, and then it was obvious to me. And I have to ask you, because what I found, and maybe this is not true, you know how the internet is, but there was there's a strange connection. I was going to ask you about the Drake connection. Or, no, the Drake equation. Sorry, mm-hmm. the Drake equation. Mm-hmm. Well, then I was surprised to hear that that was one of the things that got Barney really inspired was that he was able to meet Frank Drake. And and that's a, just such a nice, a nice loop. Yeah, it was more than it was more than Barney getting inspired. He actually got Frank Drake to come out to California. So Frank was a professor at Cornell University. And Barney called him up and said, we're forming this nonprofit to do SETI. And we'd like you to be the president of that nonprofit institute. And so he really twisted Frank's, I mean, I was on the phone call. I was quite astonished by how, how successful Barney was at convincing Frank to make this rather bold move from the East Coast to the West Coast. Barney continued to be our secret weapon throughout his life. And he introduced us to many, many people in the Silicon Valley who he had worked with or for or done favors for over all of his years at Hewlett-Packard. And then he'd take us in hand and introduce us to these same folks and help us tell this SETI story. So Barney was absolutely key in our initial fundraising efforts. And it was a really, we learned some good skills from watching this man convince others to to take a leap of faith or at least part with some of their funding. 
because that's what it's all about now, right? You learned eventually that you could go donation by donation. You had to work on endowing. You had to find folks that were willing. Well, we're certainly working on that. And in the meantime, it's donation to donation, right? We keep raising money in the same way that we have in the past by asking people to support this scientific exploration. And yeah. it's... But let's go... Let's we've, been go. Said, we've been successful. We're still here. We're still going on. It's, well, that's because of the wonder of it all. So just to, I just have to circle back to this. So people make a connection or don't, whatever you think. But was this, was this, was SETI at all kind of a, an effort to put some scientific underpinning to this whole aliens visiting our planet thing? I guess, wasn't it? 1947 was Roswell. 1951 was that Texas Tech where those three professors saw something like, and then 76 or something was, does this have anything to do with that? No, in fact, that was a big pain in, in our sides, a thorn in our sides. One of the things that has been hard for us, and we've been doing it from the very beginning, was to try and make a distinction between ufology and scientific pseudoscience and a scientific exploration. So we suffered from that misconception by much of the public that we were dealing with UFOs because we're not. Because some, there were some people that counseled you against devoting your scientific career to this because of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it's, again, now that we have exoplanets and extremophiles, it's much easier to make the case that this is exciting science and that there are many aspects to the question of life beyond Earth that will allow individuals to help us make progress and in some sense do what is more standard academic research. So extremophiles and exoplanets, they're our friends, and we're learning some very intriguing things about them, and we'll learn much more when we get to the next generation of telescopes and instrumentation. Well, to that point, I bet you artificial intelligence and machine learning is your friend as well. Doesn't that make the whole process churn along at a different pace? It allows us to do different things, right? So one of the reasons that we could do the search with radio telescopes and optical telescopes and do the signal processing in real time so that if something showed up, we could immediately go back and check it out. That's been a mantra for the SETI Institute it's from the beginning. So we're now able to imagine a whole different set of modulation schemes and different properties that we weren't looking at before. We didn't know that maybe we should be looking for correlations between X and Y, and we only look for correlations between X and someone like X. So it, this is a very new field. There have been a couple of papers published on what folks have done in terms of building neural networks, and it's exciting, and it will get more exciting, and it will allow us not only to work quickly, but to look in different ways. And, of course, neural networks are not unbiased, but if they're built well, they are less biased 
than our human ideas of what we should be seeing if we're looking for technology. And we're, then we're back to where we started our interview, and we were talking about we don't know what we don't know. That's right. That's so this makes it a bigger, broader search. Yeah, but you know, astronomers are really lucky in the sense that historically, we want to build a new instrument, a new telescope, a new receiving equipment. And so we go to our funding sources and we say, okay, we want to build this new telescope. And if we build it, it will tell us X, Y, Z, etc. And when we've gotten the funding and built these telescopes that are looking at the universe in a way that nobody has looked before. It's a new phase space that hasn't been explored. So we build the telescope. It does X, Y, and Z as we promised. But the most important thing that a new telescope very often does is to show us something that we didn't expect at all, right? And that turns out to be a very strong cultural background, scientific background, from which to work. That if you look at the universe in a new way, you're probably going to find something you didn't expect. This, okay, so there, as we wrap up, there's two things I wanted to put in layman's terms for us because I surely couldn't, but I remember stumbling upon the Drake equation, Frank Drake's equation. I remember that knowing that sort of kicked down the door to possibility for me. I don't know what I was really thinking before about the universe and life out there and so forth, but what's the layman's term explanation of the Drake equation? I think the Drake equation is a fabulous way to organize our ignorance. You can't calculate a damn thing with it. I love I'm gay, right. So you start, and the thing that you would like to know is how many technological civilizations are extant in existence now whose signal or, or who we might discover. And so you have to start asking, well, where are you going to look? Well, let's say the Milky Way galaxy. So how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy? On average, how many planets does each of those stars have? On average, how many of those planets will, in fact, develop life? And what fraction of that life actually goes on to evolve technology? And finally, how long does that technology last? Because you started this thought experiment or equation, as it's called. You started with the rate of star formation, right? And so you end up having to put a longevity term to get something that doesn't have any units. And so it's the longevity, not of the engineers or the species that build the transmitters, but it's how long the transmitters are operated. So we've built technology, a couple of satellites called Lagios, which orbit the Earth, and they're so precise that they will not succumb to drag for millions of years. So those two satellites are going to be orbiting this planet perhaps long after there's no life on this planet. Uh, so it's, the, it's how long the technology that you're searching for is used. So that's 
a great way to organize the things that we don't know and combine them with some of the things that we do now know to help us understand what's next to tackle. How, what's the next factor in this so-called equation that we need to understand? And the last term, that longevity, is, of course, total guesswork. It's unknown and unknowable until we succeed, actually. And so, great way, particularly with students, to break down this story about looking for life beyond Earth and ask, what's required? for there to be life beyond Earth, and what's required for us to be able to detect it. So, you know, we probably should, shouldn't wrap up this conversation without hearing your, your vision about what's possible in our doom and gloom society, where everybody seems to propagate the worst case scenario. You know, the, our media is just a shambles. Don't even get me started. That's my expertise. But in, we all jump to the worst case scenario about the fact that there may be life out there and that's technologically more advanced than ourselves. But what's the best case scenario? I'm sure that you have some ideas about, I don't know, that we could expand our way of thinking about this. Yeah, I think that the best thing that SETI or Searching for Technosignatures can help us perhaps realize is that we can or will or could have a very long future, right? Because right now we seem to be in a bottleneck and there are just many things on this planet and ideas of its occupants that would indicate that we're going to have a very short future, right? That the catastrophes that we're looking at now, we won't, we won't globally cooperate and we won't find solutions to the difficult challenges. So I think that one of the most positive things that SETI could do was simply to say, look, somebody else made it through, right? There's somebody else out there, something else out there, which has technology at our level or more advanced, they managed to survive their technological infancy. That's the state we're in right now. And, you know, even if they can't tell us how they did it, the fact that they did it should be really good news for us because it means that it's possible to get to a long future. So that's lovely. that's why I think SETI should be supported. Absolutely lovely. That is a line from two dots that are easy to connect when you look at it that way. So let's wrap up with one last question. Jill, what do you really wish people knew? You know, there's this, there, you know, there's these times when we're putting our face in our hands and, and if you say to yourself, oh, I really wish people knew, what would it be? Well, I wish that people very much appreciated how vast the universe that we inhabit is. And there may be other universes as well, but at least within our universe, it's huge. Um, long lengths of time, great distances, all kinds of diversity. And 
I wish that that comprehension would steer them away from thinking that we are the pinnacle of evolution, that it all came about so that we could be, right? Um, it isn't, we're not the pinnacle of anything, right? Evolution doesn't really have a purpose. But if you understand that there's great potential out there for other experiments to have been successful in producing biology and then perhaps technology, if you adopt what uh, is often called a cosmic context, it's, I think, very important to think in those terms so that when you look at your neighbor or a citizen of another country who doesn't exactly look like you, right? Different skin color, different hair type, different body shape, perhaps. This cosmic perspective that you gain by thinking about life beyond Earth and what it might be like and actually trying to, to find its technology signature, then it's like holding up a mirror to everybody on the planet and say, see, in that mirror, when compared to something else that evolved independently out there, everyone we can see in that mirror on Earth is all the same when compared to that other. And so this cosmic perspective is really important just to understand that we are all earthlings. And, you know, I often urge audiences when they get back to their devices that have profiles about themselves to go in and modify that profile. And the first thing that you say about yourself is that you're an earthling. And then act like it. Because Caleb Scharf, chairman of the astrobiology department at Columbia University in New York is fond of saying, on a finite world, that's what we are on this planet Earth, a finite world, a cosmic perspective is a necessity and not a luxury because the challenges that face us are ones that are not going to be solved by any single nation state. We've got to see ourselves as all the same, all earthlings, and work together to try and get to that long future. That is such a lovely place to wrap up this interview. I can't thank you enough. I'm probably going to go to bed thinking about cosmic perspective. Good. I think it's a way to frame up our daily woes, you know? <laughs> Apply a, a cosmic perspective to this problem that's, that you're giving your so much attention to and um, see how that works, too. That's yes. lovely. Jill, I can't thank you enough. Dr. Jill Tarter, a giant in my book, right up there with Jane Goodall and so many others who pointed the way, pioneered and and shaped the future for us all and continue to shape the future with great interviews like this. Thank you so, so much, Jill. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, thank you folks for joining us. I hope all these ideas and connections and and thoughts about progress carry you through your week and you start finding that joy and wonder that Jill and I have been talking about. Thanks. Have a great week.